As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello guys, thanks for tuning in. This is the latest episode of the Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. And on this podcast, each week we tackle a different, quite diverse topics, I would say. And we, we try and focus on questions around tactics, tactical trends, uh, the use of data and data analytics as well. And the reason we do that is because on with me each week is Michael Cox, the tactics writer for The Athletic, and Tom Warville, who is the analytics guru as well on site. And they both join me this week as ever. Michael, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Ali. How are you? Yeah, I am well. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to be on with you because really interesting piece that you released this morning, a little bit different to, to what you've been doing recently, I'd say. This one's almost a kind of opinion piece, which I enjoyed tell me a bit about what you've published on site this week i'm pleased to hear that you were yeah so delighted to to read my opinions <laughs> ali um yeah it was just about i mean people talk so much about signings and recruitment and transfer business these days and i just think sometimes people think that you know that's what football's all about and and i still believe that there's there's so much more to what goes into you know teams performing well and teams performing badly so yeah it's basically just a almost asking a question, how can we judge recruitment teams when there's so much between signing a player and judging whether that player is playing well or not? Um, and but yeah, basically just saying that there are various sporting directors or whatever roles they have who've performed really well at one club and have gone to another club and it's completely collapsed. And I think it's very difficult really for them to be any better than, than the manager they're working with essentially because the manager is the one who's using the players. I'm glad that this came ultimately from a, a point of irritation, of annoyance from you. That's <laughs> that's where all your best stuff comes from. Tom, what did you think about Coxie's piece? Because, you know, recruitment, analysis, uh, this is kind of in your wheelhouse as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. It was quite funny. Coxie and I were, were kind of spitballing ideas on, uh, I guess, names of sport directors to, to include and whether they are kind of good or bad. And um, I realised afterwards he'd included Paddy Riley, who was the kind of head of recruitment at Aston Villa back in 2016, which Coxie kind of opens the piece with. And I messaged him afterwards saying, I wish I'd said Paddy Riley and, and kind of Villa before. I didn't know if it was too, too niche a point because Villa for me are, are one of the first teams which uh, back in 2016 were definitely 
trying to sign players using stats, using analytics as part of their kind of you know workflow to get information and, and come up with targets and eventually sign players. Um, and yeah, again, Michael kind of highlights how in the short term, a lot of them didn't kind of work out or didn't essentially prevent relegation. But in the long term, a lot of these players have gone on to have really, really solid careers. So um, I liked it for for the involvement of, of the Villa team, but also just that I think that it's a, it's a really good point that it's so hard to completely unplug a sporting director, his network of scouts, the information funnel that makes them so good at their jobs and plug that in elsewhere unless you're literally bringing the office, the people, the computers, literally everything and plugging it in again. I think that it's uh, it's very, very hard to replicate um, club to club as, as we've seen, as Coxie's kind of pointed out. Amavi, Veratu, Idrissa Gay, great players, just maybe not under the tutelage of Tim Sherwood. A, a brilliant piece and would definitely recommend that you guys go on and read that right now if you haven't already so much good stuff on the athletic site and app at the moment i've been hoovering up content in the last few days i would also recommend a recent horncastle piece on verona uh, and of course everything that tom warville has been working on as well recently theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking if you're a listener of this podcast head to that link you can sign up for an annual subscription you'll pay just three pounds 99 a month what about this topic, Michael Cox? Please, as ever, introduce the listeners to what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, well, this came from a request from one of our listeners, Craig Shaw, who tweeted that he'd quite like to hear something that was almost a glossary of, of football positions. <laughs> um, and we've narrowed that down a bit. We're going to talk about the midfield roles, both you know the words we use to describe those players and maybe a little bit more in depth about how you can identify them using some stats. Yeah, two good people to talk this through, coming from two similar but crucially different points of view, I would say. Um, and before I start picking your brains, guys, and again, just a thanks to Craig Shaw for tweeting in this request, because we do love it when you guys uh, send in your requests on Twitter. Please do get in touch with us anytime. We can't do all of them. Um, but in the last few weeks, we've started working our way through the requests. And I think there are some great ideas in there. And before we get into the specifics of the midfield position and roles, a quick question of semantics, which is about those two words, position and versus role. Uh, Michael, I guess to try and clear things up for me more than anyone before we start, uh, is a role a subset of a position by which I mean something that defines the specifics of what a player does within a more general position on the pitch? I guess so. I mean, I, I kind of think they can be can be separate. Uh, they can be considered as separate. I mean, position, I think we can broadly agree just refers to a, a almost geographical location on the pitch. I think a role can be, I mean, for example, you can use the role of playmaker. That can be from various positions, from a number 10 position, from a deep position, from, you know, somewhere in between. So, yeah, for me, they're separate. There's certain words that we use where I think you could have a debate about whether it's a role or a position. But, uh, yeah, I mean, even even something like, uh, you know, there's certain words we'll discuss that I think they can apply to various positions uh, on the pitch, albeit they can play the same role from various positions. So yeah, there's some overlap between the two, certainly. We're not going to get bogged down in, in these uh, semantic questions. But Tom, I mean, it is important, isn't it, to have a distinction between a position, centre mid, shall we say, uh, and a role within it. Why do you think that's so important? I think it's really important for a, a number of reasons, really. I mean, one of the first is that a lot of scouting is so obviously subjective and for a lot of clubs now when it comes to recruitment to, to obviously finding players they want to 
to sign, it's really important that everyone in the club is speaking on kind of from you know reading from the same hinge sheet really. And when they say a six, they know what is meant by a six. And it's, so it, it it doesn't mean that you have scouts kind of going through saying, oh, you know, this guy to me is, is so and so, and this one's someone else. And no one actually knows what the definition is of those certain positions. So I think there's a really important element of that in scouting I think in analysis as well which we'll get onto it's really important to contextualize the stats based on the position the role of what a player is playing um, Thiago kind of playing passes from deep that break lines into the attacking third if he doesn't do a lot of those in the game you'd say that he's failed because the requirement of his role is to do that to bring that to the team and so again for for you know watching a game and seeing the roles of a player not from the data but just from watching live I think it's also really important to to bear in mind and how you kind of shape an image in your head of of the way that the teams have set up you have two teams which both set up positionally in a 4-4-2 but actually the roles within that can be completely different mm. and can therefore lead to games with them with them being involved being kind of really really different spot on well you mentioned there that it's important for people within clubs to be singing from the same hymn sheet and i suppose we are in a way now going to put this into practice and build our own zonal marking hymn sheet a style guide if you will when talking about uh, the center of the park and midfield roles we're going to start at the base of it if you will and work our way forward through various midfield roles to the well, to the exciting ones, let's be honest. Uh, Michael, let's start with the holding midfielder. Uh, and just to touch on what we've touched on there, is this a position or a role within it? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's more of a role. I think in terms of the position, it would typically be the deepest in a three-man midfield. But I think they can be part of a two-man midfield as well. I mean, for example, Oriel Romeo of Southampton, who I think I'm right in saying has is, is made the most tackles in the Premier League this year, I still think of him as a holding midfielder, even though he's playing in a in a two with James Ward-Prowse. Obviously, Ward-Prowse gets, gets forward a bit more. I mean, I think to be a holding player, they have to be primarily defensive-minded. I wouldn't include someone like Jorginho or Calvin Phillips as a holding player um, because I think they're those players are generally considered in terms of their creativity. Um, I think there's an element of this player having to sacrifice themselves for the good of the team and particularly uh, usually two other midfielders rather than them being a, a really key cog in, in the size build-up play. Okay, and, and not a million miles away from the holding midfielder is the Makalele role. Uh, we've done a whole podcast on this, which the listener can go back and search for, and we would suggest that you listen to that. But just briefly, what does the Makalele role mean for you and, and in the context of holding midfielder, which we've just discussed? Yeah, we call it the Makalele role, but for me, it's more of a position. I think they have to be the sole defensive midfielder in a 4-3-3, maybe a midfield diamond where the the, the position or the role is similar. Um, they basically sit in front of the defence and break up play. Makaleli himself was quite an interesting player, as you say, we've chatted about him before, but he had this positional journey really from being quite an attacking right midfield player uh, and then a box-to-box player and eventually at Real Madrid or Celta Vigo and then Real Madrid really became a central midfielder and, a, and then a holding midfielder. And he insists the key that, uh, to his game was that because he used to be more advanced, he used to be more attacking, he knew how to work with those players, the Galacticos at Real Madrid. Um, and he always speaks about his technical ability rather than his positional play when he's asked about the role. But yeah, I think we think of a Makaleli type player as mainly defensive. That's what it was about. And I think this was a time when football was much more defensive than it was now. And, and, well, certainly less 
technically minded. And so there wasn't that much emphasis on, on quality and possession from a defensive midfielder then. And I think Makaleli kind of just epitomised the, yeah, sitting in front of the defence and, and protecting the centre-backs part of the job. But it kind of sounds like from what you've said there, that that might almost be a bit of a misrepresentation of what Makaleli's qualities were. Are, I was going to say we, are the people who invented that phrase and, and made it canon in English football terms anyway, slightly missing the point? I don't know. I think um, I think to a certain extent they're missing the point and, and to a larger extent, Makaleli probably bigs himself a little bit too much in terms <laughs> of his technical ability. I mean, uh, he was neat and tidy on the ball and was a decent passer, but uh, I'm not sure you could find too many examples of him, you know, playing really impressive passes not I'm not even talking just diagonal passes even in terms of playing passes into the forwards I think he was on the more limited end of the spectrum in terms of uh, you know top class defensive midfielders uh, in terms of his yeah ball playing ability certainly not a sprayer I think it's fair to say um talking of recent episodes of this podcast even more recent than the episode we did on the Makalele role uh, was one we did on Javier Mascherano and he's relevant when we talk about what you've written here Michael the number five position very specific to one part of the world yeah in Argentina really is is where they have this great kind of mythology of the number five Mascherano, I think, is a great example of a player who, you know, when he played there rather than at the back, um, was a classic Argentine defensive midfielder. Number five was all about being physical and aggressive and a tackler. And I think the fact that actually those qualities in European football were often more centered, uh, suited to playing as a centre-back rather than a midfield kind of shows how the game has, has changed slightly. Um, I think in recent years, actually, Uruguay has probably produced more classic number fives than Argentina. I think of players like Arevalo Rios and Diego Perez, who played a, a very prominent role for Uruguay, what, coming on to a, a decade ago now when they uh, won the Copa America. Um, I mean, these players, I, I think they can offer something on the ball. Redondos, to a certain extent, was a number five. But I think, you know, the role slightly changed. Maybe you could say the role slightly died in terms of that old school Argentine tackling number five. The players that are coming through now and the players that are maybe in their you know, early, mid-20s who have established themselves at the highest level, are very good on the ball. You know, Argentina have uh, Leandro Paredes, Uruguay have Lucas Torreira. I think they're very good technical players. Um, Brazil, I think maybe there's there's been a similar kind of development. I think there's less of a real culture of the number five there, but they do use the same shirt numbers. The the kind of players they have in those positions, I think, have become more technical as well. I'm thinking Casemiro and Alan. Fabinho, who plays for Italy, but essentially is Brazilian. Um, maybe Fred is in that mould. I think maybe the last classic Brazil number five, who I think of as playing a regular part for the national side, was Felipe Melo, who was very, very destructive and always getting red cards. And yeah, this is a few years ago, but he felt like a bit of an anachronism in that respect. Um, I mean, personally, if I was using the phrase number five, I wouldn't use that term unless it was for an Argentine. So I had a look through the stats in, uh, across European football and the closest Argentine number five I could find is a lad playing for Nîmes called Adrian Cubas, who I must admit I'm very much not aware of. Um, he's Argentine-born, although he has one cap for Paraguay. Uh, he's in the top 10 in Europe in the major five leagues for tackles um, and he's only scored one goal in the last couple of years, which was, I think, the only type of goal that is acceptable for a proper defensive midfielder to score which is a corner cleared to the edge of the box and just smashes it in from range clearing um, it 
Yeah, pretty much. That's what you want. But yeah, he got a red card last month as well. And I think getting red cards is a fairly crucial part of being an Argentine number five. Oh, yeah. You have to have the sort of one-to-one goal-to-red card ratio, I think, to, to really fit the bill here. I mean, I, I ever since we mentioned Mascherano, and as you were talking through there, I've had the word Pac-Man in my head. That's what Rupert Fryer told us, was always the word used for Mascherano and that sort of player. And I think it, it, it it's quite a nice one to visualise what we're talking about there. I mean, squad numbers are, are very important to you, Michael, rightly so, of course. <laughs> um, some people have the number six as a centre-back, certain parts of the world, I should say, probably. Um, but what does six mean in midfield terms? I mean, I think it's quite a general term for a deep midfielder. Uh, it can be a single holding player or part of a, a double pivot, in which case in Europe is sometimes called a double six. Um, I think of Germany and the Netherlands as, as most typically giving number six to a central midfielder in recent years. Like you say, in England, we think of it usually as a centre-back. To a certain extent, it's the same in Spain, although their numbers can be a bit less consistent I think in Premier League terms, I think of Rodri as a fairly typical number six for Manchester City. I mean, he's just very obviously a deep midfielder, has played at centre-back, but I think has a kind of sturdy feel to him as as a number six. He's not really bombing forward too much. Um, I don't think the number six has as much prestige in Europe as the number five shirt does in Argentina. But yeah, there's a a fairly similar categorisation, I would say. Kind of like an all-rounder type um, but with a, a defensive first mindset, I, I think it's probably one way to sum that up. But Tom, I mean, data analysis of individual players and, and finding the right metrics, the right stats to look at to, to get a, a feel for a player and to rate players as well within certain roles is, is a fascinating part of what you do. And I think this part of the pitch, specifically those roles Michael's just talked about, is fascinating as well because... I'm interested to know what metrics we might prioritise when looking at these more defensive-minded midfield players. I mean, what springs to mind is is probably something that can be quite misleading, which is things like tackles and interceptions. Where do you stand on this? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really great point because uh, at the moment, using the stats that are in the public domain to try and separate out some of these guys, I think you'd have a really tough time just trying to. Uh, differentiate between a, a six and a holding midfielder using the stats alone. Um, I do think there are some more interesting stats that will probably come to the fore um, in the next couple of years, and they will mainly come from the fact that there have been great um, advances in in computer vision, which essentially is you know companies are starting to train machines, train computers to recognise things from broadcast footage, so they can now recognise when a player is blocking a passing lane, or they can recognise when they are kind of adding pressure to the ball, and I think those as more tangible measurable things is always going to give us a greater understanding of um, if a player isn't tackling or intercepting which again usually maximum you're really going to see them doing it 10 times a game of both of those and that will really be like you know 95th percentile and upwards this will kind of help fill in the gaps and and color between the lines of what we kind of are getting at the moment from the outline of tackles, interceptions, recoveries, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think that the kind of passing lane blocks and pressure will be one area that's interesting. I mean, one thing that I always try and do to to get a bit of an understanding of just, it's probably more around defensive activity and workload instead of assigning a player a role specifically, but it's more around kind of possession adjusting how many tackles or interceptions that a player makes. So Obviously, if you're a player playing for Manchester City, you see so much of the ball, there's much less of an opportunity to defend because you don't have to defend when you are in possession. Um, whereas a player for West Brom at the moment has 
you know, their job is defense first, that they have to defend so much more. So being able to adjust per possession, um, and I do it by looking at the number of times they tackle or intercept for every thousand touches the ball the opposition has, which again, neat, neat proxy for understanding whether um, they are doing it more because it's kind of their role or doing it more because of um, the amount of possession that their side has or, or I guess doesn't have. And it, it, does that also apply or could one apply an extra filter based on, you know, I'm spitballing here, but potentially using PPDA or something that measures really the, the team's style out of possession to work out whether this bloke, even with possession adjustment having been made, this defence midfield player's task is literally to block passing lanes and to protect his back four versus another player whose remit might be more to go after the ball and, and actively try and win it back. Is that something that that happens or is that something that could still be improved upon? Yeah, again, another good point. And from kind of speaking to a lot of people who who work at clubs and, and you know, do a similar amount of stuff with the stats that I do at The Athletic, they kind of view it more that you don't really adjust the actual figure that you're looking at, but it's more how you contextualise in your mind why the player is putting up the numbers he is. And I think very much just understanding what the team style is, the team context of, of how a player is playing. Like you say, if the PPDA figure, say, of, of West Brom is around 16 and Conor Gallagher's putting up really, really high tackle and deception numbers, that says something that he is pretty much the only aggressive midfielder who's sat. Um, sounds like he's going against Sounds like he's going against instructions to me. <laughs> yeah, he's going against the, the party line. But but then equally, like there's an argument to suggest that him trying to up the tempo a bit more out of possession is useful because otherwise West Brom are just kind of sitting back, soaking up stuff and I mean again we've spoken about West Brom and, uh, and how kind of bad their metrics have been this season so yeah I think that there's there's various other ways you can look to adjust it I do think that another way is just looking at what's the proportion of touches a player has in the different thirds Declan Rice is someone who will go forward across the halfway line who will get on the ball further upfield Fabinho is someone who never receives the ball in the attacking third or, or rarely looks to anyway and again that is just a nice little way that you can understand the role a little bit more from the kind of limited information that we have with the current suite of available stats. Mm, interesting. Okay, well, now we're going to move on to the, the sort of player that I reckon about 50% of the podcast listeners who play the game imagine themselves to be, especially as the years tick by. And I might be referencing myself a little bit here, I must admit. Uh, Michael, the deep-lying playmaker. Yeah, I find this term funny because I don't know the use. I don't know why we use this word lying in the middle of it. I, I, you don't really think about a footballer lying in any position, do you? I mean, like, deep playmaker does the job perfectly well, but we automatically say deep-lying playmaker, as I do. I'm trying not to, but you just automatically say deep-lying playmaker. Yeah, I mean, I think this one is almost self-explanatory, isn't it? It's a primarily creative player in front of the defence rather than in a number 10 position. We see more and more of these in the modern game. I said earlier I wouldn't call Phillips at Leeds uh, a holding player. I would call him a deep line playmaker. Same with Jorginho, who's, who's maybe not so expressive in his passing, but I think is all about keeping the passing rhythm ticking over. Um, I guess they're often associated with, with long diagonals. Xavi Alonso, for example, um, was a classic of the genre, I'd say, um, at Liverpool. And I think changed his game a little bit to become actually even better player with his distribution at Real Madrid and Bayern Munich. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's one of those where it kind of does what it says on the tin. Uh, even if you exclude the word lying. I've always been intrigued by the fact that even, I mean, Michael doesn't like the word lying. I'm not a huge fan of the word playmaker in this situation either. <laughs> um, and I guess it, 
it's mainly because when we think of playmakers, to me at least, we're coming up with ideas in our heads of, of chance creators or people who are getting shots and they're actually like, making things tick. Uh, and the, the deep playmaker, um, it, it's probably more around progressing play and moving up between the lines and getting the ball into the final third more often than not. So I think that from a stats point of view, that's how we're measuring this. We're looking at passes into the final third. We're looking at progressive passes. We're looking at line breaks, if we kind of have access to those. Um, and it's it's more a kind of deep progressive player versus someone who's actually making plays in the more, uh, in the kind of chance creation sense of the, of the word. Yeah, it's an interesting point about the word playmaker, actually. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago reading an interview with Louis van Gaal when he was at Ajax in about 95, 96, I think this interview was. And he said that, in the modern game, as he was talking in 1995, the play uh, the playmakers are now the centre backs. So he his view of playmakers was really they were setting the kind of you know they were playing the initial passes, and I, I guess it's kind of like Tom says it's not really well defined. I mean, I think the Premier League now have an award that is Playmaker of the Year, which goes to the player with the most assists. And yeah, for me, I think they're they're almost different things. I think some players are great playmakers and also prolific assisters. I mean, someone like Kevin De Bruyne, for example. But I mean, someone like Mesut Ozil, who was, you know, at his best, was getting assist after assist. In a way, I don't think really was a playmaker in a... He wasn't making the play. He was adding almost the final touch. So yeah, it's it's maybe a word that has different people think of as being different things. Certainly. Um, I mean, you've got an issue with the lying part and Tom doesn't like the playmaker part. So just trying to work out what I could have against <laughs> the deep part. I, I suppose off the top of my head, if you're playing in this deep line playmaker position, you've got almost certainly at least four teammates playing behind you, deeper in a sense than you. So there you go. There's my issue, just so we can make it three out of three. Uh, Michael, I mean, actually making plays is quite an American sports topic. And I know that the um, bleeding into our lexicon of American sports terms isn't always something that you enjoy too much. It's something that Tom and I are guilty of from time to time. I want to ask you about the um, growing use of the phrase or the word quarterback in footballing terms, just how much does that grind your gears? I don't massively mind that. I mean, from my limited knowledge of American football, it does kind of make sense. <laughs> There's some other ones Tom says that annoy me more. When he talks about a player having a career season, that really, <laughs> that really annoys me. I can accept career best season. That does the job. But career season is... Oh, I don't understand that at all. So. Che Adams is having a career year right now, that's for sure. Um, Tom, um, as well as, as using our eyes to uh, pick out different roles, and I think we can certainly do that fairly well um, when you've watched a lot of football and when you have a good understanding of what the roles are, to what extent can we use data to define w which roles players are playing and therefore avoid any sort of bias or uh, confirmation bias that we might have. Like the reason I ask it at this juncture is what defines a guy who's very clearly playing a deep lying playmaker role rather than your average holding midfielder, for example, even if they're operating in, in similar zones? I mean, most of it is, is just down to what the player does on the ball, even if they get on the ball as well. So, you know, for a deep line playmaker, it's it's the kind of progressive passes and and elements of play that relate to moving play upfield. For um, the kind of Pac-Man role, it's breaking up play at rates above the, what you'd usually expect. But obviously, the, when we're looking at stats and usually kind of like 
trying to make up a decision on our minds of kind of what kind of role a player is. We're not really doing that explicitly. We're kind of trying to infer it from the stats that we're looking at. But there are some interesting approaches, again, from kind of some public analytics work where people are trying to actually explicitly give a label to a player based on what they do. And this is, I would guess, a bit of a, a machine learning 101 where there are two schools of thought of how you you label anything, really. The first is you um, you give it to a machine and you give it a kind of training data set. So you say, here's a load of players and these are their roles and these are the roles that we are happy and confident that, that they are. And the machine will kind of learn from the data that you feed it based on tackles and passes and, and whatever else that's in the in the data, what kind of role a player plays in, in kind of a new data set. So if I gave... Um, the machine then the Michael's profile in terms of data and it would come back and say hmm I'm pretty certain he's you know more of a 10 only a little bit certain that he's a, a deep lying playmaker and even less certain he's a holding midfielder and from that then you come to realize that from that approach all these roles are kind of on a spectrum and you're kind of 30% this and 60% that and the actual role that you see sometimes from, from these kind of products or or attempts is kind of the most common role that they're assigned so that's one school of thought, which is very much you've got to do a bit of, of groundwork to start with. The other work or the other side of it is kind of unsupervised. So you give the machine or the, you know give a computer loads of stats and say, put this into eight different groups. And then it'll come back and a group will be labeled with group one, group two. You know, group two might be Declan Rice and, and Thomas Suchek. Group three might be Jorginho, Kovacic, Fred. And from there, you kind of assign your own labels based on what you think the the kind of role or the group is. So it, it is interesting to see that obviously these roles, these labels of the roles are so big in kind of the lexicon of, of sports. And yet there's only a small focus on, on how they're actually applied within the analytics area. And a lot of a lot of this work is more, you know, implying what role they play based on the stats instead of actually out and out going to label them i hope the athletic aren't allowing you to do too much of that unsupervised work tom to be honest it sounds a bit dangerous to me um just <laughs> just just to just to to press you a bit further on let's say the deep line playmaker role um i know we've spoken in the past about work that you've done previously about uh, you know maybe having a look at where players play their passes too you know i suppose in in simple terms you could say you could you could by looking at that workout who is just playing simple passes to to recycle the ball or to pass it to you know um, more creative players and those who are playing those longer passes to to move the ball forward itself yeah i think the key word here i mean we should probably just relabel this this podcast context fc because that's what we seem to kind of do <laughs> at times but yeah it's very much some of the stuff i, I did back at, at opta was um, we built a phase of play model which yeah, on every pass on the pitch you actually put what kind of phase the game was in so if it was John Stones passing to Amirak Laporte, you'd, you'd probably think most of the time that's in build-up, given the position of the back, given what's happened before that. If it's a pass kind of from midfield into the final third, we kind of label that as progressive play, um, looking to move upfield the, up the pitch. And from that, then you can try and label, like based on the passes that players make, what um, what phase are they within and also what phase they move them between. Um, Oriel Romeo, for example, is a player who I think that a lot of his passes are probably in transition he's broken up play he's then trying to set up attack quickly from that and again that can be really illustrative of the type of player um the type of role that a player plays the type of role that he plays within a given team 
Um, and also, you know, really, is he any good at it? How good does he complete passes or make passes at rates compared to other players? So that was some some kind of, you know, really interesting work that I think, again, spoke the language of football, the language of coaches. And we managed to get quite a lot of buy-in um, from clubs because we were using those terms. We weren't being too data science I guess. Nice. Um, just like when you were on that panel with Sam Allardyce and you guys got on so well. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Michael, uh, what about the term register? Um, now, I mean, the use of, of foreign labels or foreign roles uh, in our game is something that gets debated about whether it's a, it's a good or a bad thing. But in terms of, of some of these words like register, it is so specific to a region or a country that, you you know, if you're going to talk about this type of player, you have to use that kind of phrase. Yeah, I mean, I think this is very similar to the word for playmaker in the sense that it's a role rather than a position. Um, the regista, I think traditionally in Italy, could play anywhere in midfield, really. But I think because the fact they have words like trecortista to mean a, a number 10, fantasista, which is a bit more obscure, a bit more about, a, you know, the real magical qualities of a player. Um, and they played higher up the pitch. The, you know, regista came to mean, uh, for foreign observers, someone more like Andrea Pirlo, who I think is... Uh, one of the few really transformative players of the last couple of decades, certainly in Italian football, you know, a, a nation that really used to produce a lot of quite hardworking workmen-like journeymen defensive midfielders now produce players like Tonali and Barella and Verratti and Sensi to a certain extent Jorginho, although as I mentioned before, he's, he's Brazilian by birth. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's become known really just for that kind of deep role. But like I say, a bit like a playmaker, it can refer to a wide variety of positions. The longer we do this podcast, the more we could get to the point where half of it is just me plugging other episodes that we've done. But if you want to know about the development of... Italian central midfielders over the last 20 years, as Michael has touched on briefly there. We did a whole pod with James Horncastle on this very topic, talking about Pirlo and talking about Tonali and so many of those other players as well. Tom, I don't think you've got anything specifically data or data analysis to add here, but you did learn something during this uh, during researching this pod. Yep, I can definitely see you're, you're reading the notes, Ali. Um, yeah, I, I found out that <laughs> Regista um, literally translates to movie director, which um, I never knew before. But um, yeah, again, it, as Michael says, that could be a silent movie, it could be an action movie. and shows you just that <laughs> these roles inherently can actually be quite different. And our new film podcast uh, will be out next week. No, I mean, moving through midfield, we get to the number eight. And I feel like this is, this is quite a popular one in, in modern footballing parlance, Michael. Uh, he's an eight, or we're playing with two eights. 
What does this mean for you? Yeah, I think the number eight kind of means the same wherever you go in Europe and probably anywhere around the world. I think it's more advanced player. I think it's about getting up and down the pitch. Um, typically, I think a number eight would be one of the more advanced roles in the 4-3-3. I think if Aaron Ramsey is a very typical number eight. I think they can play deep in a 4-2-3-1, although you'd always want them alongside a proper number six if we're sticking with you know, continental European shirt numbers. I think if you have two number eights deep, you end up with the, the Lampard-Gerrard problem. So yeah, somewhere approaching a, a defensive midfielder and attacking midfielder, someone who can do a bit of both, I would say. Who do you think, I mean, we've mentioned Aaron Ramsey, who's been outside of the Premier League for a few seasons, Lampard and Gerrard, of course. Tom, is there anyone that you would put in the, the number eight box in Premier League terms for a reference point for us? Yeah, thinking of this, I mean, one name which sprung to mind was Abdullah Decore, who's obviously at Everton and, and kind of feels like the player who you could easily see running around the back line, kind of screening the defence, but equally gets touched in the box and gets shots off as well. So he's one who at times for uh, Watford last season sat alongside Etienne Kampu, who I feel is more of a, a six. Um, and he's kind of the more holding of the two and, and Decore is kind of freely able to roam. But then with Decore, and again, you see that players don't have to just play one role as as we know one one kind of position he's also deployed as a 10 for Watford last season as well so it goes to show that this elements of a player's game which means that they are um able to to play across different positions i might have been guilty at times of of thinking that a box to box midfielder and a number 8 are pretty much the same thing michael is is a box to box midfielder a role within the number eight position or are there clear differences in your opinion? No, I think you're fairly spot on there. I don't think there's a huge amount of difference. I mean, box to box midfielder as a term, I think is quite interesting because it literally says, you know, the positions they're going to be on, on the pitch. They, they contribute in both boxes. I think in literal terms, it's just tough to do that now because of the speed of the game, because how quick counterattacks are. I think if you go back to the 1980s, even the 1990s, and you watch one of those games and you have these very kind of, by modern standards, quite slow attacks that gradually build up and midfielders do have time to push forward and contribute in the uh, in the opposition box before getting back to defend their own box. I mean, just doing that is very difficult now with the speed of the game. So, yeah, it's, it's a term that um, I still think works. I still think you can use it for a number eight. Again, Aaron Ramsey, I would say, is a classic box-to-box midfielder, really. But yeah, in, in very literal terms, I think it's tough to play that role in the modern game. It's an interesting question because I was kind of chatting to Carl Anker recently. We were discussing Scott McTominay. And I'm just intrigued that like, McTominay played a game recently against Leeds, obviously scored two very early, very quick goals. And that, to me, those moves, those kind of runs from deep head elements, which you probably would align with a more traditional box-to-box midfielder because McTominay, I mean, in the league this season, he's intercepting the ball at nearly unparalleled rates compared to other kind of central and defensive midfielders. And again, shows that there's adaptability from him to play both those roles. And McTominay's an interesting example because it, it does show that like we speak of a player's kind of evolution across different positions, but is it just not more that they you know, in one game are used in a different role. It's not really a, an evolution. It's more of a, a change, like a, a slight tweak. It, it doesn't really signal that they've actually got better and able to do more stuff. They're just actually doing different things when on the pitch. Yeah, I think in terms of statistics, how we measure who is a, a kind of box-to-box midfielder, I think you want someone who can mix 
good numbers in, in a defensive metric and an attacking one. I remember being amazed by Juventus era, Arturo Vidal, because he was always very high up in terms of both tackles uh, and goals. Um, this season, I had a look through the stats and someone we mentioned in previous podcast actually is uh, Anguissa at Fulham. Uh, as we record this in the Premier League, he's fifth in terms of the most number of tackles and second in terms of the number of dribbles. Um, Bissouma at uh, Brighton is also a kind of similar player. And I would say actually Sarri era N'Golo Kante was actually very good at that. I mean, he was his tackles numbers dropped from when he was playing as a you know, a deeper defensive midfielder, but he was he was still getting in tackles. And actually, I thought his goal-scoring threat for a player who hadn't really offered that, uh, you know, in his previous role um, was pretty impressive. So, yeah, those are a few players I think we can broadly say are playing as box-to-box midfielders in uh, in certain systems and under certain managers. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And Geese is definitely uh, a good example because it feels like, again, when we come to this idea of, of roles being on a spectrum and not kind of, you want wholly one role or, or another, like he's one of a very few or very you know small select group which can do both of those things in terms of tackling and, and dribbling. And, and Basuma too as well, but it also feels that Anguissa is comfortable in and around the penalty area as well. And I expect him to have played kind of as a more attacking midfielder at some point in his career um, because of that. But yeah, I always find it really interesting. And now, like now we're speaking on it and, and even just thinking about it more that um, it's so hard to try and adjust. You know, we could in an ideal world say, and is doing a lot of these um, and not saying for like, for a central and defensive midfielder, he's doing a lot of those, but for a player in his role as an X, um, the issue you get there though is, is sample sizes just get so small so quickly. Um, and we I mean, will get onto the fact that if in data terms this season, Bruno Fernandes is like the only central attacking midfielder who's playing in a, a 4-2-3-1 with a certain amount of minutes. Um, and I think we, we will get over time. There are like differing sample sizes across positions, which means that roles are really useful to kind of identify players as but to compare players within roles you have that that sample issue um, which means that it's it's hard to tell whether a player is um good or bad or, or doing a role differently against those in kind of his uh, his mm. peer group okay next in our colossal glossary is a shuttler michael uh, the phrase shuttlers in midfield terms just always makes me think of ac milan under ancelotti yeah i mean they used the diamond midfield for what the best part of a decade didn't they gattuso and sadov two very different players were on the sides of that diamond um yeah i think traditionally it was the players on the outside of, of that system i think traditionally they had to provide the width um i always think of ramirez as being a classic one here he used to play in a diamond uh, at benfica um, when there was a great Benfica side in about 2011, I think it was. Um, I think things have changed a bit now in terms of their actual role because I think with the emphasis on attacking fullbacks and the fact we have more strikers who are mobile and attack from wider positions, often those players, you know, the shuttlers, actually have to stay in position a bit more and guard against the counter-attacks. I don't think we often see, you know, a player playing like... Ramirez did for Benfica. I mean, I actually looked through the stats and tried to find how often a diamond midfielder had been used in the Premier League this season. I couldn't find that many examples aside from Manchester United on occasion in recent weeks. Usually it's been uh, Pogba on the left and he played a similar role at uh, Juventus, I think probably when he was at his best. And also McTominay, uh, who we mentioned earlier. I think the wider they are, end up in the attacking phase of play, the more I think of them as shuttlers. But I think probably they are somewhere between defensive midfielders and, and box-to-box players in the modern era. I think we can also use shuttlers just to be 
a bit more general and a bit vaguer about players who probably don't have a defined position, but are very good at just getting up and down uh, somewhere between central midfielders and wide midfielders. I think of Jeffrey Schlupp at Crystal Palace as someone like this, who, uh, I mean, he started off really as a fullback at Leicester, increasingly played as, as a left-sided midfielder when he got to Crystal Palace. I've seen him on occasion on the left of a midfield three, and on occasion this year has been played almost as a number 10. So <laughs> I find him a very confusing player. So I think... Yeah, as as a kind of broad description of a player, I think Jeffrey Sharp is a shuttle. Could be his first ever mention on this pod, you know, which is, I think it's about time, to be honest. Um, okay, we had, I reckon, 50% of listeners consider themselves deep down to be a deep-lying playmakers. And here's the other 50% of listeners, probably a bit more youthful in average age, a bit more in the tank. Uh, the number 10, Michael, probably the most glorified position on a football pitch, I would say. Uh, and is it a position or is it a role? Uh, I think it's both. I mean, I think it's so <laughs> complex. The kind of mythology of the number 10 just is, I, th- I find that absolutely fascinating, especially the kind of different interpretations of it in different countries. I mean, I think we'd all agree a number 10 traditionally had to be between the lines. The precise system probably doesn't matter, but I think preferably when they've got their own band in the formation. So it's like a, th- a 3 4 one, two, or a 4 three, one, two. I guess these days it's more likely to be a four-two-three-one, and they're almost more of a second striker. But me, it's yeah. For me, it's about a, a kind of role. It's, it's something very complex, and it's about the fact that a, a team is kind of built around a player, and that player has some freedom from the overall system. But he has to use that freedom to play for the team, if that makes sense. So it's almost this you know, almost this cycle, this this very complex relationship. And I think Diego Maradona, who everyone would think of as the classic number 10, I think he was because even though he was maybe the most talented footballer there's ever been, he was actually a very selfless team player. He wasn't, you know, for all the goals he scored by dribbling through the opposition because he could, I don't think he was a pure individualist. I think he cared about his team. I think he was, you know, such a, a leader at Napoli. He, you know, he encouraged others both off the pitch and with the way that he played. And I would say someone, you know, to bring it forward to a slightly more modern era, I was always fascinated by the decline of Wesley Schneider because I think when he was at his best under Mourinho at Inter, he was the classic number 10 because he was, you know, a very rare player. Mourinho allowed freedom from the system, but he was all about playmaking. He was all about playing the killer pass. He didn't actually score that many goals. And then he changed. He he had this World Cup uh, in 2010 with with the, ne- uh, the Netherlands where he scored a few goals and he came back and then under, I think it was Benitez who came after Mourinho, then he started using his freedom to be selfish and shooting from silly positions and thinking it was all about him. And I think that shows the difference between what a great number 10 has to be and what I think a lot of people think the number 10 is, which is just this guy given a complete free role and told, you know, it's all about you. It's not. It's still about the team. And I think the best number 10s appreciate that. Tom, what's the status of the number 10 in Premier League terms at the moment? Yeah, I kind of said before, but around like, if you're looking at central attacking mids in the Premier League with with 900 or more minutes, I think Bruno Fernandes is the only name that kind of pops out. And that kind of shows that a lot of teams have shied away from the 4-2-3-1 really, which was just so in, in vogue in the last kind of six, seven, eight years, really. Um, it feels to me that a system which was used by Wenger a lot in his kind of latter years at, at Arsenal and adopted by a fair few others uh, as well. But some of Bruno's stats this season really match up with, with what Cox is saying around 
there's such a burden on the tent to create for the team. And obviously it's, it's so important that they use the amount of ball that they see in a good and, and kind of positive way. Um, now I think Fernandez this year is averaging, uh, I think it's around 0.9 goals or assists uh, per 90. I think that's including penalties as well. So having a really big impact for United. And I think we can all agree that since he signed, he's been one of the best players um, in the league, irrespective of kind of the volume of penalties that he's had. Um, but he's also got the highest usage rate in the league as well of, of any player. Um, and that's in the last three seasons as well. And I'm kind of defining usage rate as the number of possessions that Fernandez uses up by either taking a shot, uh, conceding possession, turning the ball over in, in kind of a, a take on or something like that. Um, and he uses nearly 20% of, um, of Manu's possessions, uh, when he's on the field, which is a huge number and shows that you know, everything runs through him. He's very much burdened with the task of creating and, and actually playmaking, if we're going to come back to that term. And yeah, I, I kind of, A, I mean, I'm writing a piece at the moment on on United's chances for the title. And I think that so much rests on, on him to do all of the heavy lifting that that for me shows that there's not really the solid foundations that really they might have, you know, back up, you know, plan B, plan C options behind him. Um, but yeah, I think Bruno at least again from a data perspective, seems to be the last of a, a dime breed of, of kind of these very recognisable central attacking mids in the Premier League um, this season. High usage player. Sounds like a point guard to me, don't you think, Michael? That's a basketball term for you there. If you didn't I got know that, that but I don't know. What, what does that mean? Is that a position? Yeah, that is a position. One of the five positions on the court at any given time and arguably the most important, especially on the offensive end. Anyway, With, I find it interesting. Again, we, we come back to basketball. I feel like you said earlier, Ali, I mean, you and I kind of lean a lot on, on that sport, sometimes stealing terms or, or, you know, using it as a way of framing things. But it's funny how in basketball there only ever is kind of the distinct number of of roles on on the court, um, and it's just the team teams kind of it's their usage or their their choice of how many of each of those roles they want to use. You have teams which will kind of stack up on um, the number of players who can shoot three pointers and shoot from the outside. And there was a kind of small ball revolution last year where a lot of teams, or I think it was the Houston Rockets, tried to um, play a lot of shooters uh, instead of a lot of kind of taller, less mobile centers and that kind of blew up spectacularly but it's just so different between the sports that in football if you had a team like you'd never see a team that had three holding midfielders because you would lose so much in terms of ball progression and and attacking threat and I think that when you get down to it analyzing the reason why a team is performing badly at times is just due to a mismatch in in style tactically around what they have in terms of the roles that they're playing and what they need to, to have to kind of get the most out of the players um, on the pitch. Um, Arsenal, again, a, a perfect example of some, a team we've, we've analysed nearly to death on this podcast around are the roles that they're playing in midfield the kind of correct ones to um, you know, make them a, a better and, and more coherent side. A balancing act, I think it's fair to say. I mean, I, let's hope this never happens. But if Michael ever has to miss a week, Tom, I reckon we should uh, pencil in a, a basketball and football crossover special. Uh, I'm sure you know plenty of interesting uh, people in the NBA analytics sphere that maybe we could talk to there. Anyway, let's finish off this week's pod, the matter in hand, because we're talking about the number 10 position to finish off. And within that, of course, we've got various different roles from around the world. And Michael, one of them that gets used um, both sort of 
to take the mick out of the sort of person that uses foreign words uh, to talk about English football is the Argentinian phrase enganche. Um, you've written books about tactics and tactical trends across the world. And so you can actually tell us what an enganche is and why it is called that. Well, it translates as hook, doesn't it? Which I've, I've never entirely understood. I mean, hook in English would be dangerously close to a rugby union position, wouldn't it? So we can't have any of that. I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's their word for number 10. I think the obvious recent example is Raquel May. Um, we heard a lot about the death of the classic Argentine number 10. I think that's probably true when you look at someone like Javier Pastore, who has had a good career in Europe, particularly PSG. But I remember when he was first at Palermo, I remember thinking this guy could be the best player in the world. And he, he didn't ever really come close to that, if we're being honest. Yeah, I mean, Enganche is, is a purely Argentine thing. When when Messi first arrived at Barcelona and was playing in their under-14 team or whatever it was, he was asked what his favourite position is. And that's what he replied with. And, and people in Spain at that point had no idea what he was talking about. Um, obviously, Messi has generally played as a right winger or as a false nine. Okay, in, increasingly in recent years with Barcelona, he has been played in that number 10 role. Um, but he's played it more for Argentina than he has for Barcelona over the years, um, comparatively, of course, because they use they play fewer games. But I think that shows the fact that in Argentina, uh, in Argentina, there is this mythology behind the position. They do want their best players to be playing there. Um, but yeah, it's one of those. I think it makes sense to to use it if you're talking about an Argentine. But otherwise, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't really bother. And what about Trequartista, which you mentioned earlier in the pod? Yeah, the Italian equivalent, I'd say, yeah, it means three-quarter man as in three-quarters of the way up the pitch. I think um, Totti's the perfect example, really. I know he played a variety of positions, including as a false nine, but his best season, well, his only league-winning season with Roma was was under Fabio Capello when he played in a in a 3-4-1-2 behind Battistuta and Montella or Del Vecchio. Um, I mean, Roberto Baggio is, I guess, the classic proper Italian trequartista in the last few decades. And there was always a big debate with him because he always wanted to play behind two strikers rather than as a second striker. He thought that's what his role was all about. The two strikers would occupy the two centre-backs and he would roam just behind. So it's, yeah, it's it's one of those. It's a bit like the the, the number 10 debate we had earlier about whether they have their own band in the formation or whether they're just a second striker in a 4-2-3-1. But yeah, we rarely now see a 3-4-1-2 formation, for example, which is where you would traditionally consider a Trecortista, particularly in those old Italian Catanaccio systems, which was a kind of slightly complex collection of roles, but was basically like a 3-4-1-2, I would say. And, I mean, this is a a broad question, but one that I'm interested to ask you, Michael, especially having read uh, one of your books as well on on the history of the Premier League. But, I mean, do you think one of the reasons why we're so intrigued at at these foreign definitions and the foreign players playing in these number 10 roles is that off the top of my head, I can't think of too many English number 10s. And I wonder if we've been a bit starved of good number 10s, either English players or in the English game, I suppose, uh, over time, just because of the development of our domestic game. Yeah, I think it was a bit of a chicken and egg thing, wasn't it? I mean, traditionally, English sides played 4-4-2, so they didn't produce those players. So yeah, I think traditionally, we, we didn't produce enough players in those in that mould. And I think over time, you can find some players who were probably misused by by English sides because of that. But I think things to a certain extent have changed now. I think there's less difference than ever. Uh, in terms of nations across Europe, in terms of the type of players they produce. 
And I think, you know, English, English football does have a few players who can play the number 10 role. Whether they do week in, week out is obviously a slightly different conversation. Tom, you got any favourite Premier League number 10s off the top of your head? Any, anyone yeah. that you remember fondly? Yeah, one that, that sprung to mind and probably is, is close to home for you, Ali, is Wes Hulahan for Norwich, who is still applying his trade at Cambridge United um, at the moment. I think he's got four assists of the season. So Hulahan for me is, yeah, he feels like more of a traditional 10. Um, literally not English because obviously he's he's capped by, um, by Ireland. Literally not English because he's obviously Irish and, and capped by um, the Irish national team as well. So yeah, I think Hulan for me was was the one that stuck out just from playing in uh, in the English leagues. Still think Adel Tarabt. I still think that career should have gone differently. Brilliant. Well, with images of Wes Houlihan fresh in our minds, we will wrap this podcast up. Hope you've enjoyed this pod, guys. A, a glossary-themed episode talking about midfield roles. Let us know on Twitter what else you'd like us to tackle, either in this sort of realm in terms of a glossary of sorts, but anything, really, we're, we're always keen to hear from you. And, and as we've said before, we really do have such a, a, a wide remit, which is brilliant for us to work with. And it means that we really can go anywhere week to week, but we want to make sure that we're doing what you guys would like us to do. So please do get in touch with any or all of us on Twitter with suggestions, with requests and a request from us that you make sure you are reading all of Tom and Michael's writing on the Athletic site and app. If you're not a subscriber, but you'd like to be, theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking we'll see you get an offer of £3.99 per month for your annual subscription as I said earlier I've been absolutely hoovering stuff up in the last few days during lockdown uh, Simon Hughes's piece on the Marine Tottenham FA Cup tie was absolutely magnificent there's a brilliant interview with James Tarkovsky as well the sort of thing that I've not really seen elsewhere so do make sure that you're subscribed and reading as much as you can and thank you so much for listening make your make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed as well you can get all the zonal marking podcasts and all the athletic pods ad free on the athletic app as well if you'd like that and join us again next week on the zonal marking podcast brought to you by the athletic the athletic